welcome to yet another episode of React Roundup. Today we have on the panel me, Thomas Alot. Hello. And we have uh, Charles Wood. Hey, everybody. And our guest for the day is Tejas Kumar. What's up? It's good to be here. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So we were just checking out the like the transcript, especially, of the YouTube video of your talk, Scalable Design Systems with TypeScript. Where and when did you do that talk? That's a, that's a really good question. I did that talk at React Finland in the beautiful city of Helsinki. And it was, that for sure was like my, one of my, I can't say my favorite, you know, but it was one of my favorite conferences because it was like this family style thing. It was, we all that's stayed cool. in the same hotel and like, Oh, that's fun. Yeah, yeah, it was really... Very cool. It seems like they've yeah. been doing a lot of React conferences out there. I mean, they React Days Berlin, there's oh, yeah. React Amsterdam, React Finland. It looks like I'm actually going to be at React Amsterdam. Oh, that's cool. That, that is awesome. So, yeah, I mean, a lot going on out there in, in kind of the European scene. You know, we have React Conf here in the U.S. That's right. And I think there are a couple of other smaller local-ish conferences, but not a ton. So mm, I'm going to be speaking at actually the first of its kind. So there's a conference called Render ATL in um, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh-huh. I've heard um, about it. Yeah, dude. It's a React Conf, React conference. And it's going to be, it's this cool concept with like diversity and inclusion baked in. Like they have a room for kids and stuff. I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's like this conference for React and everybody. Nice. So the, your talk kind of hit upon two of my, my favorite buzzwords, which is design systems and TypeScript. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've been a diehard <laughs> design systems nerd since the nerd. days of before it was cool to post-process your code and you had to just <laughs> ship production your actual development source code <laughs> with maybe minified and that's it. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know. And TypeScript is is my latest addiction. Well, I guess it's been a couple of years now. But and then React, obviously, because it was React Conference. So React design systems and TypeScript. So how did you fall in love with all of these things, or at least you know come to talk about them so passionately? Yeah, that's you know it's looking back in hindsight. This is actually something I wish. Well, I can't say I wish it never happened, but I think it was kind of a mistake like where it all began because we started, yeah, it was a startup and we wanted to build like this, you know, this, this big app that we would sell a classic startup story. And we decided, you know what we need? We need a design system. We need like a set of components <laughs> that are reusable that we could just kind of throw together and put, you know, put forms and things together really fast. And there was ant design even out at the time, but we were like, no, let's make our own. Of which, course. <laughs> yeah, which uh, <laughs> that's always better, always. Right? I'm just like, why did we sh now looking like 3 years later I'm looking back I'm like, man, what were we thinking? But, yeah. you know, some good came of it, specifically being that we created this design system and it was a learning experience really for all of us. Um especially we we learned about modularization and kind of how you expose APIs in a way that is like comfortable and idiomatic because our design system was this like external thing 
that didn't really care about your domain specific, you know, logic and concept. So it was, it, it was great for us to learn about separating things. And when you throw TypeScript into the mix, we were able to create these APIs that were just like, they taught us how to use the components. Like we didn't even need docs. We still wrote docs, of course, but by and large, our thing was self-documenting, if I, if I can say that. So that's, that's kind of why I was able to talk about it so passionately because we solved a real problem of, okay, I imported a button, now what? What, what can I do with this button? And, and TypeScript was able to help that. I'm, I'm a little curious just so that we kind of understand all the terms we're using. So a design system is a common set of components. That's, man. Or is there more to it? I mean, because I mean, that's kind of where my brain goes. And I'm like, yeah. it seems like I've oversimplified it. So yeah, no, it's, it's kind of like serverless. <laughs> you, know, you know, like it's, it's this thing that can mean many things because to some people serverless means like the Jamstack and then to mm-hmm. other people serverless means like functions as a service, like Lambda, you know, so it's like, it's a loaded term. And so you're, I think it's really good that you ask that because people mean different things with design systems. As I'm talking about it here, I just mean a set of components that work together as a system that implement design, that implement like graphical you know, screens that a designer has prepared. So that's, that's all I mean. And there's other people that have other meanings and other contexts that warrant them. But in this context, that's kind of what I mean. Just a shared set of components that compose together to form an application. Right. So this, this, this term is made out of pure hand wavium. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> at least, at least in the, for the intents and purposes of this chat. I'm sure there's some yeah. academic, like, proper formal definition of it. Sure. Probably. But we get the idea, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So now how did you how did you go from the design system to TypeScript? Having worked with TypeScript, like the one thing I'm extremely thankful for is it's it adds like a third dimension to documentation. You know, and, and I spoke about this already. Like I imported a button, what do I do with it? And TypeScript answers that question. Now with JavaScript, I have no idea. I always have to go to GitHub and look at the docs. But with TypeScript, yep. like it, it gives me a red squiggly underline and it says, hey, listen, your button needs an on-click prop. It won't work if it doesn't have a click handler. And I'd be like, oh, okay. So, I don't, so it teaches me how to, how to use it. And so that's the value. So I've used TypeScript for like functions and libraries and things where it also will tell you that like, hey, this function requires you know, two parameters or whatever. But you take that and you apply it to a design system and it really like comes alive. So we were able to, with, with not just specifically with design systems, but generally using TypeScript to the max. I think at, at this, you know, when I worked for this employer, we actually maxed out TypeScript for the value we could get from it. Like we turned up all the strictness settings to like 11 plus. <laughs> and it really, the benefits showed because like we had planned features that would take like, you know, th- like this little feature would take one or two days or something. And we usually got them out in like a matter of hours, if not minutes. Oh, wow. That's nice. yeah, and that's because TypeScript just it 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 helps you. It says this is what's possible, this is what's not possible, that's what you're gonna break. So it thinks about the corner cases before I can. It feels kind of like crutches for your brain to help you think thoughts that you don't have to think. It's like spend zero mental effort thinking about this and get the result of having spent an hour or three thinking about it anytime you change a single character. Exactly. And you can delete code confidently, which for me was the big sell. Like I worked at a startup in the past in a purely JavaScript code base. It was like an AngularJS 1.3 kind of deal. 
And, you know, I, I would delete stuff and I wouldn't know. And the next day I'd come to work and like my team lead would be like shaking his head and like, hey, you broke this thing. I'm like, oh, sorry. I, how could I have known? Well, read the code. Well, check it. Well, you should, you know, you should know whatever, but. All right. Type Where are the tests? Read all 700,000 files. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And even if, the, even if there are tests, like tests, if you don't have TypeScript and you have tests, your tests usually will have a lot of like, if type of this equal, equal, equal number throw or something like that you know like your, right. your code would be super defensive against invalid types whereas with know. typescript it would I, just it wouldn't even compile yeah my deal though is that honestly if you're if your code is breaking there should be a test in there that's going to catch it Absolutely. you know and yeah you, you have the you have the typescript transpiler that's going to do all the type checking and it it short circuits a lot of that which yeah. is also nice because then you could go delete the tests and I don't know about you, but I get this perverse joy out of yeah. deleting code and oh, yeah. tests or code. It's like, oh, don't have to maintain that sucker no more. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's done, right? It's, it's one more thing that I just don't have to really think too hard about. And so, for sure. Yeah, I feel awful, man, because I just, like, literally just before this call, opened a pull request with, like, wait, let me look. I still I have it open here. And it's like, it's, it's such an awful pull request because it's plus 1,231. <laughs> oh, and minus 227 so it's just this like monster what did you just run prettier i wish no i <laughs> i added like an entire crud flow for a resource basically and ah you know and it's a graphql thing with like these like queries that have multiple yeah. fields and so like I, i'm learning that graphql inside a react component just makes for really long files. Because if you think every field you request is a line in the query, so. Interesting. Yeah, that's true. I've been getting into GraphQL lately and it's, it's super nice on the front end and it's a royal pain <laughs> on the back end. Well, that's actually the inverse of my experience, mainly because our back end is just all of the GraphQL is handled for. So we use Hasura. I don't know if you've played with Hasura. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I should have done that. Man, Hasura is a gift. It is my literally one of my favorite. And we'll do picks later. I, I know, literally but like, have no idea what it is. What it is? Oh, can I can I uh, open this can of worms? Oh, absolutely. You have five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like okay, just imagine you have this Postgres database, and hypothetically, there's this thing that you just say, "Hey, my Postgres database lives here," and literally, that's all you do. You tell it where it is, and magically, it gives you a full CRUD GraphQL API to do whatever you want on the database. Literally, like mutations, queries, even real-time subscriptions over WebSockets. Oh, wait. Say that part again. Which, which part? The subscript. What about subscriptions? Yeah, dude, it just gives you support for real-time data with subscriptions, just magically. You just literally point it to a Postgres database and everything GraphQL works out of the box. Okay, so I'm building like a, you know, the to-do list kind of, you know, hello world of everything. Yes. I plug it into GraphQL with mm-hmm. a subscription of, you know, give me all the latest to-dos or whatever. Sure. Plug it into this magical Hasura thing and then anything that adds new things to the thing automatically updates That's my right. to-do list. Really? Yes. And, and you write, really? absolutely, you only write like a subscription in GraphQL. Just, just that GraphQL query, that's all you write. The, the rest okay, that sounds pretty good. Hasura, it blows my mind. Like I did this at my work last week and I showed it to my team and everybody was like, oh, wow, that, that's amazing. And I, I'm right there with them. I'm just like, how is this possible? So yeah, yeah. I have to make a few calls. <laughs> Hasura, yeah. Hasura used to sponsor some of the shows. 
One of the things that I'm curious about, though, and this is something that I never actually got around to asking them because I'm like, this is nice, but I, I'm always in a position where I have to maintain permissions and stuff like that. So is that all built into? Mm, yeah, they have, a con- they have a notion of roles. So I, I haven't played it extensively with permissions, but yes, I mean, from the docs, at least, they, they definitely support roles, role-based permissions. Nice. Okay, that sounds pretty epic. It's yeah, and yeah. All you need to do is like literally enter the URL of your Postgres DB. That could be something on RDS or whatever, and it just magically gives you a full featured API. It's crazy. Yeah, love it. Mm. Now I have to figure out how to cheaply host a Postgres database. <laughs> AWS, oh, there are a lot of RDS. options for that. Yeah, you could. Yeah, Heroku. Gotta go spend no. a day googling. Yeah, you could even just do it locally with Docker Compose. No, I scale <laughs> to infinity from day zero Nuts. or nothing. <laughs> Do you live in San yeah. Francisco? Sounds like that dialect. No, I'm in Florida. <laughs> oh, that's where my company's base is, where I work. Oh, that's fun. What yeah. company? G2I. Oh, yeah. G2I, also a sponsor. I should point that out. What? That's cool. Yeah. So I think I'd know that. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> I, I talk to the marketing people and then, yeah, we have the tech people on the shows nice. completely independently, incidentally. I didn't line this up. But anyway, sense. yeah. I know we're talking about design systems, but I'm just, I'm really kind of wanting to dig in on this a little bit more. Yeah. I don't want to go into GraphQL t- for too long because this is not a GraphQL show, but <laughs> I, I'm still kind of in love with tearing this yeah. apart a little bit more. Well, to be fair, GraphQL is part of the React family of technologies. Yes. So, ah, that's true. <laughs> everybody else has adopted it now, too. Yeah. I mean, ask Tom Okino, he's, he's the director of all that jazz. Even Relay, which I've never used, but seems cool. Yeah. Yeah, Relay's hot. I just never got the edges and nodes thing. This is, this is me showing off my ignorance. But I, I genuinely, like, I see the words edges and nodes in a Relay query, and I'm just like, what does this mean? Oh, yeah, that's all based on, um, it goes back to ancient, kind of the, the Facebook Ent framework, which is uh, everything is either an, an entity or an edge between entities. Oh, and a giant, gigantic graph of all data. Wow. It's, yep. it's very powerful. If you know how to use it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of a learning curve. I remember when I first started there, it was like six-week boot camp. I don't know if they still have that, where they teach you all of the things. <laughs> Interesting. Anyway, I'm going to push this back to design systems, but uh, Good yeah, idea. now I'm, I'm really wanting to go play with Asura some more. I'm working on a, a web app I've been live streaming, building it, and I've been hammering out all of the GraphQL definitions in Ruby on Rails. Oh my goodness! And it's it's a pain in no the offense butt, to man. Rails, but yeah, gross. That sounds like I've written GraphQL by hand on the server side myself, and it's it's yeah, it, it's like a full time job. It needs yep. automation. Yeah, you have to write a mutation for every little thing you want to do. Yeah, you know the query the query stuff is pretty easy because you just map entities. The the mutations is like, okay, I have to go write all this boilerplate now in order to get the update. You yeah. know, and I can I can kind of work off of the create a little bit, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, and then you get into the area of subscriptions and you're like, oh, okay, I have to do some real time stuff too. Yeah, yeah, I haven't that's, looked at that yet. That's rough stuff. Yeah. Anyway, design systems. Yes. Yeah. So I, I I noticed you're using Monaco, the the editor from VS Code. <laughs> yes, we are. I recently kind of dove down the rabbit hole because I want to kind of build my own kind of note-taking system based on that. 
Tell me, how is it to use it? It's, you know, it, it's like most things, once you get the hang of it and fill in the blanks that the documentation don't, doesn't cover, it's, it's fine. Like, I've been meaning to open pull requests, actually, to the docs because there's some stuff that isn't covered that I wish was because I had to learn the hard way. Like, I had to go diving, like, in the source code of Monaco to see what, what I could do specifically around. And if somebody from, you know, Monaco is listening, I, I might open the pull request if time's available. If not, feel free to, you know. But is this area of modeling modules, like imports and exports? Because like, if you just want to do something simple, like a note app, absolutely, it'll work. Um, and it's it's really comfortable. It's straightforward, especially if you use one of their, they have some boilerplates with Parcel and Webpack because it's a little bit difficult to bundle because it comes with like all these workers for these languages, right? Yeah. I, I think we've gone down the the into the weeds a little bit too oh. soon. Can, let's circle back to the sure. beginning. Like, first of all, like what is Monaco? How are you using it? Where are you using it? What? Why? Right. That's that's really good. I I tend to run into weeds and not smoke them, but just like anyway. I uh, so what is Monaco? Monaco is the the thing that powers VS Code, the text editor, like just the mm-hmm. editor without the extensions, without the language, actually with the language server, without like file save as and all that jazz. It's just the text editor portion of VS Code. It's an independent module and it's actually a node module. So you can kind of NPM install it in your project. And what it does is it gives you things like syntax highlighting, even auto-completion on like TypeScript projects or anything that can be statically typed. It exposes a language server that like listens to the code you write. And that's how it's able to do syntax highlighting and auto-completion. And it's this really, like if you've used ZS Code, it's that editor, right? And it's, it would be pretty cool to have it available in a browser for some type of project. So Code Sandbox, for example, that's how they create Code Sandbox. In the beginning, it was just the Monaco editor, but now they actually took VS Code and put it in the browser. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. But no, that's what Monaco is. This, it's, it's a little bit lighter than the entire VS Code. So that's what, that's what um, it can do. And what we're using it for is, so we use it actually to document our design system. It's pretty rad. So if you go on operational-ui.netlify.com, it's, a, it's the documentation for our design system. And it gives you these like code playgrounds where you can you know, write a little bit of code and it, the component renders based on the code you've written that you're looking at the docs for. So you could be looking at a button and you change the color to red in this text editor and changes to red you know, in the little demo thing. But that text editor is Monaco and it has like TypeScript definitions for the component you're looking at. So for button in this case of our example. So like you're able to completion on the props um, of button, and you're able to just kind of work with it just as you would in VS Code, but directly in the browser in our docs, which is just internally for our team alone, it has saved us like hours and hours on end. What was that URL again? Operational what? Operational-ui.netlify.com. Yep. I just dropped it in the chat. Yeah, it is. It it might take a while to, to render because we're shipping. Unfortunately, we didn't split out the Monaco editor, so we're shipping all that code to you. <laughs> Don't you even dynamically bundle, bro? Yeah, it's a, it's a dev tool for us internally, which kind of made it out into the wild, but wasn't ready for it just yet. So one thing that I'm wondering about is with a design system, 
I mean, how do you go about even starting to design one? Hmm, that's that's a really good question. It's a really good thought, actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of like Downshift by Kent Dodds. I don't know if you've heard of Downshift or maybe Reach UI by Ryan Florence. Like these things are kind of design systems, but they're not actually opinionated on design. Like they don't look like anything special. They look just like regular old, you know, HTML primitives, but they wrap them to give you things like accessibility or click handlers or what have you out of the box. So I think it's possible to have a design system without even any real like design or color patterns or whatever. I guess that kind of blurs the lines of definition between design system and component system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Whereas like the, I remember back in the day, there was the Facebook interface guidelines, which was a design system that had multiple implementations, one of which was in React. And there was another one that was in native Android code and native iOS code, but it was the same design system, but with different implementations of it. Yeah. So it was a slightly different component system, although the des- I guess the, the component kind of concepts were shared across. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, no, I see, I see what you're saying totally. But that's a really good... Man, I never thought about um, where you would start with a design system. Because for us, we really made it up as we went, which is probably not ideal. But I, I'd imagine, like, in the, like, if I look at Ant Design or what is Shopify's design system called? It's called Polaris, I think. Polaris, yeah. If you look at that, they, have, they start with like this design language. Like this is, what we, this is our intent and this is our brand. And then I think a designer might derive components from there that a dev would like implement. That's a good question. I, I don't really know. If you're a front-end developer looking for remote work, then I recommend G2i a React and React Native-focused hiring platform that will connect you directly with their clients that need your skill set. What makes G2i a unique hiring experience is that they spend the time marketing you to their clients of your choice. G2i is a team of engineers that technically vets you up front. If you pass their vetting, their clients have agreed to skip their initial interview process, saving you time and energy getting your next gig. They take care of all the hard work for you so you can get focused on development. To join G2i, go to g2i.co and apply. Yeah, well, it's interesting you, you bring up just that, you, you know, we just kind of fumbled our way through it. And what I find is that a lot of projects out there, especially even the ones that are released publicly by, you know, corporations that need them and use them, that, that's essentially how they get built is, you know, it's yeah. essentially a long series of experiments to figure out what works. And then it's, hey, we've got something that works for most of the stuff we're doing. So here you go. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for us, that was actually not a bad thing because we were, we were literally building the plane in the sky as it was flying. But right. there, there's like, I know tons and tons of people, man, you should see my Twitter DMs. It's like full of people, really amazing people who want to get in on coding and want to learn how to program. And like, since we were already building this plane in the sky, I was like, yeah, come open a pull request. We'll collaborate. We'll build it together. Um, and so like a lot of people made their first pull request to any open source project ever on our component design, on our design system. That's Um, huge. Yeah, and it was kind of this vehicle for like mentoring people. In fact, one friend of mine, Adil, kind of just started with some PRs. I've never met him before in my life. Started with some PRs and on the, like the PR is still there. It's it's merged, but it's, you know, on GitHub because GitHub remembers everything. Um, It's like he couldn't quite 
rebase his branch on master because he didn't know the difference between like a pull and a rebase. Mm-hmm. And so like there's this this awesome conversation thread where we like mentor him through it. And then he learned it in the end. And long story short, he actually ended up, so he was, he made the pull request from like Pakistan and he's, he wanted to come to Europe and he ended up getting a job here in Berlin, actually, among other factors, which I think is just really cool. So it's, it's this thing that we were fumbling around, but it also had a lot of benefits to fumbling around for more than just ourselves. Yeah. I love that where, yeah, somebody, you know, makes a contribution and they learn something that helps them get further down the road. And I've had a number of conversations on various podcasts. I think the one that is most recent, most poignant was on the Clean Coders podcast, which is a show that we just launched this week as we record this. And I was talking to uh, Chris Powers from Thinkful. And yeah, he was talking about finding a mentor. And yeah, just having somebody walk you through this stuff is so powerful. Definitely. But also, yeah, just having having the system out there where yeah, somebody else can come in and kind of fumble their way through it as well and, and move things ahead. Yeah, if you think about it, that's kind of all software engineering is. Yep. I, I don't really believe it to be this like academic genius thing where we all have it all figured out. <laughs> like right. I, I spent enough years in this industry to know that, no, we're all fumbling around. Man. But that is pretty huge because that's, I mean, how I learned everything I know is from hanging out with all the Mutuals guys on IRC. And when I didn't understand something, I would go and figure it out. And then I would, you know, ask people on there. It was very interesting how we all kind of figured out what this means in JavaScript. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Although like my experience with that was a little bit different. I was for whatever reason, often like, you know, I felt unsafe to ask questions because I felt like everybody wanted me to know the answer already. So I was just like, okay, well, I have no one to ask. I'm just going to Google and Google ad nauseum until I figure something out. So I never really ended up doing a lot of the asking. Now I'm more confident to be able to ask, mm-hmm. but like in the early days, absolutely not. That's why I it's so useful to have safe too. spaces where people feel comfortable and, and safe to expose their ignorance, our ignorance without yeah. repercussions. <laughs> yeah, when in reality, there are no repercussions. We think there are repercussions, but actually like from experience, the more I've been open about, hey, I don't know what Kubernetes is, the more like people have helped me as opposed to judged me. The real repercussions, I think, are just us blocking ourselves and stopping ourselves from, I guess those are pre-percussion, well, whatever. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, we got to get over our our pride, man. Because then we actually ask the questions. Like, I would love to know Kubernetes. I still don't. I'm trying to figure it out. But we have a but, DevOps show for that. Ooh, okay. I'm I'm interested. I'm gonna listen, but I don't want to stray from the design systems and TypeScript. Although yeah. Kubernetes like is an enigma. Too. Yeah. One one thing that I'm curious about too with the design systems is we kind of talked a little bit about, you know, Kent and Ryan's different systems that are kind of basic systems. They don't really rise to the level of design systems. And so, yeah, I, I think we've kind of said, okay, you know, it has to have at least a certain level of functionality and things like that. Are there things that you don't put into a design system? Things that Absolutely. you kind of keep, yeah, keep to the side? Yeah, for sure, man. I, I would never put, this is actually a conversation we had as we were building operational UI. So I, I've quit the company that built operational UI, though it's open source, so I still contribute. But Mm -hmm. when I was on the inside, we would um, have these discussions of, should this live in operational UI or should this live in our internal application? And so if there was even the remote smell of like 
you know, organization-specific logic in the component, we wouldn't open source it. So for example, operational UI ships with a color scheme. That color scheme is the company's brand colors, which is, you know, whatever. But if -hmm. there's anything more specific to the company in there, that's probably something we shouldn't put in the design system because it doesn't really make any sense. It's like kind of leaking our own implementation details, but into the design system. Yeah, I like how the React team has systematically tried to remove all of the Facebook-specific stuff out of React and and similar things. I mean, it's still in that ecosystem, so it's still very much based in their needs. Yeah. But you you don't see a lot of the weird internal specific stuff. Yeah, definitely. Like, and the person asked me, you know, why does React keep introducing all these new primitives like suspense and hooks and all this? And I... And my answer was like, well, I don't, I'm not on the React core team, so I don't know definitively, but my answer was probably because Facebook needs them, <laughs> you know, which basically, I guess if Facebook needs them, we need them too, you know? Yep. Definitely. Especially suspense. I mean, and hooks, yeah. we needed that desperately. Oh man, hooks, like such a dream because just like classes could not be minified. And so we used to ship so much code to our users, so much. Yeah, no, I, I, I've never been a fan of JavaScript classes. Yeah, which is why it was kind of the thing back in the MooTools day. But. Yeah, but they, man, like in all my experience with JavaScript classes, it's like it's like trying to walk up an escalator that's going down. It just, <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't seem to work well. And you know, this is what this is what, this was the one deterrent um, for me as I as I wanted to get into TypeScript was I thought it was like. Oh, TypeScript allows you to write classes. TypeScript's all about classes and OOP, and I don't want to write, you know, classes and constructors and private, public, protected scopes and all this. Same. So that that's the reason I stayed away from TypeScript for as long as I did. But once I realized, wait a second, it's literally JavaScript but with some extra syntax. I was like, oh, cool. And that's actually what got me into TypeScript was realizing, oh, it's not just classes. Awesome. Yeah, it was exactly the same way. It, it it had this smell of like oh C sharp and like Java and all this stuff. And yeah. not to knock C sharp, C sharp's awesome. But and you know, yeah. Java can be fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my my issue with classes just in literally every language that is class based. So Java, for example, is it it it's the mental model is not this has a component, but it's more of this is a thing. And the problem with that is yes. you, you think of a car in terms of a car or a vehicle, yeah. but you don't build a steering wheel and then you know put it everywhere in a ship, in a car, in an airplane. Like that to me is functional programming. It's this, like I build this one thing that is a thing and it goes in multiple places. Yeah. The, the whole strict inheritance thing really gets you in trouble. Like I, I remember hitting it doing Android development and trying to replace an implementation of something, oh, but it has to be a, a subclass of this specific class or yeah, a specific yeah. instance of this exact class. And you can't swizzle it. You can't, you know, do something that's exactly the same, but slightly different. It's just, ah. Oh, and there's bad. also the, the question of what is, what, like I always struggled with static things versus instance things. On, for me, it's a little bit too esoteric. Whereas like, I think we all as humans, I could even talk about functions with like my mother, like, because we we're all Mm -hmm. like, we intrinsically, as we grow up, we kind of learn what a function is and how a function works, not specifically in code, but the concept is kind of baked into our everyday life. 
one of one of my functions is I wake up and I take a shower. I could literally call that a function and model it in code. Whereas with classes, it's a little bit different, I think. Yeah. All that to say, we don't have any classes in operational UI, except a few legacy React components in the design system. So you talked about scalable design systems. So yes. a design system is, you know, we, we, we've talked about kind of the shared functionality, uh, design aspects of this, and, you know, some of the baseline level of functionality that it has to have. But what makes it scalable? For us, it could only scale with TypeScript. And that's, that's why you see that the title of the talk is Scalable Design Systems with TypeScript. So the, end, the last word qualifies the first. TypeScript is what makes it scalable. Okay. Because it, it, yeah, it cannot scale without TypeScript. Why? Well, if we decide, hey, we're going to remove this prop. We're going to remove the color prop from buttons because we want all buttons to now be monochrome going forward. Then that would never scale. We, have, we, have, we use buttons literally over 750 times in the code base. It wouldn't scale with JavaScript because the, we, would, we wouldn't know the API changed. Whereas TypeScript says, hey, listen, the API is different. The color prop no longer exists. Therefore, oh. we can go throughout the entire code base, 750 occurrences and fix it because TypeScript shows us exactly where. So that's how TypeScript helps us scale. So you're kind of talking about scalability in the sense of, of developer experience and certainty and making sure that a single developer has the power to make a big change without breaking everything? Yeah, because so I'm talking about static scale in a code base. I'm not talking about runtime scale for customers. Gotcha. About, yeah, because I mean, code, code bases do scale. Oh my goodness, like you, you start a code base with like, you know, three pages and 17 components. And then next year, you're in like tens of thousands. And this is exactly Facebook's problem right now. And this is also why, you know, everybody praises React for like, oh my goodness, React has no breaking changes. How amazing. But it's simply because Facebook cannot afford giant refactors. And that's often why React will not have breaking changes. Or if there are, there will be code mods. Because yeah, you need to make changes in a way that scales. So in that sense of scalable, yeah, I think React is in an interesting position, not, not necessarily because of the particulars of React, although there are many, but I think just the, the kind of the culture, the cultural standards of the React ecosystem is, is what you said, is like it should be seamless to update. Correct. And backwards compatible if possible. Yeah. Or at least a path from, forward. Yeah. Not, you know, byte for byte compatible. It's insert a code mod here and you're done. Yeah, for sure. What did you think of with scalable? What's the other what's the other idea? Typically when I hear scalable, I think, you know, runtime, server, you know, it can it works fast, that kind of thing. Yeah. And you can run lots of it, right? You can write yeah. big things with it. Right. Right. I see that. Yeah. I guess the other thing that I'm looking at with this is that, you know, we're kind of talking about using TypeScript to catch these issues and things like that. Do you actually have tests and stuff like that on TypeScript? And I guess the other, the other thing is, is, yeah, you've already told us that you've kind of implemented TypeScript to the nines, so you've got all of the type definitions and everything else sitting in there to make it work, right? Yeah, totally. And this is, this is again, where I would tip my hat to Kent Dodds because testing JavaScript.com is it makes a lot of good points, specifically the point of test behavior and not really 
useless implementation details. And so that's kind of what we do. We, we have a lot of types. So impossible states are impossible. What I mean by that is you can't have a tooltip that's positioned on the top and the bottom at the same time, right? Like the compiler would be mm-hmm. like, what are you trying to do? Um, so we don't test for that because TypeScript will tell us that's impossible and we'll refuse to build our project. But some things we do want to have unit tests for. For example, we have a hook in the design system which isn't even like a visible element on the UI. Regardless, we have a React hook. It's called use URL state. And it's, I love this thing. My coworker at the time, uh, Fabian, his name is, he came up with this thing. And it's like, it's like use state, but it's like the same API even as use state, but the state lives in your browser's like query params. But like to set it and to update it, it's exactly the same API. So this thing obviously works with like, the browser and relies on encoding and decoding kind of a query string. And so that type of stuff, we definitely have to unit test for just to make sure it behaves the way we expect. And there's no like, right. you know, odd characters in the URL and stuff like that. That's sweet. I think I've implemented the exact same thing, but my implementation is probably not very good. I'm going to steal yours. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Fabian's implementation was so good that I like copied it from operational UI into this like internal thing we're doing at G2I, literally from my old job to my new job, because it's just that good. Nice. Well, anything else we should talk about when it comes down to scalable design systems that we haven't covered? I think one thing that is also really important, and this is where our scalable design system failed and wasn't very scalable, was the area of themeability. And it's it, for, for me, it's an unsolved problem. I don't really know how to create a design system that supports theming in a good way. What I mean by that is a design system that makes it, you know, kind of as easy as running like npm install React, right? Like a design system that makes dark mode that easy. And so that's, yeah, that is something I'm trying to figure out. And that's, I think, maybe the one undiscussed thing. We don't tend to talk about theming that much in design systems, but it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting area for me. Yeah, most design systems are are specific to one design. It's it's rare that you have something like a material design or whatever that's that's intended to be themable up to a certain point, I guess. Yeah, for us with operational UI, we wanted it to be super themable because we plan to use it not just for our tools, but like we had a lot of companies coming to us and saying, "Hey, can we have this?" So it was, you know, our company back like where I used, when I used to work there was a data science company. And so a lot of customers would come to us and say, hey, can I, build, can I have an analytics dashboard for this? Or can I have like a geo mapping dashboard for that or whatever? And so the goal was to build them UIs that kind of look like our stuff, but with their branding. So that was the need for theme. And it worked pretty well in, for, for most cases. But when it came time to go dark mode, we, we'd realized we'd not really thought it through. Right. It'd be interesting to see how material design does it. Yeah, leave it to Apple to always, you know, upturn the Apple cart and <laughs> make everybody re- re-engineer everything. Yeah, yeah that's true. But that's good. <laughs> we need something to shake us up out of our comfort zone occasionally. That's right. Definitely. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of dark mode. Man, I love dark mode, especially because so my phone, you know, it's an iPhone 10. It has this OLED screen. And so if I can save battery and just have these beautiful deep blacks, absolutely. So I'm definitely on the train. It's just... We have to update a lot of web application logic now for it. Well, I really appreciate you coming and talking to us. Yeah, awesome. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there 
And it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine. And it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. It's definitely time for picks. Oh, yeah. So, C-dubs, is your turn first. Me first, huh? All right, well, I think I picked this before, but I've really been enjoying it, kind of getting to the end of it. It's the book, The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. It's taken me a while to kind of listen all the way through it just because I'm busy, but I've really, really been enjoying it. And so I'm going to pick that. I also want to shout out about the Clean Coders podcast launched this week as we record this. So by the time you get this, we should have like five, six episodes up. Nice. It's, it's been awesome. The first episode was with Uncle Bob Martin. And then, like I said, we've talked to a whole bunch of other folks about all kinds of stuff. And yeah, just awesome, awesome interviews. So I'm going to shout out about that stuff. And yeah, and then just go check out devchat.tv slash workshops to see kind of the group coaching offerings that I've got coming up over the next few months. And yeah, stay tuned for other stuff. I'm, I'm working on a whole bunch of other stuff. And yeah, super excited about that. Yeah, I think those are all my picks. Awesome. I'll go next. So I have another physical option. I, I've picked it before, but the Checklist Manifesto, I'm rereading it and kind of studying it in depth and seeing how I can apply this in my life. Of just like, there are certain aspects of our lives that imagining I am made of code and I can program myself. It's like, I don't want to write all imperative code all the time. I want to wrap up a lot of my you know, commonly re, redone processes into functions and rerun them in multiple ways. So that, you know, as humans, that's like a checklist of go through these steps in this order multiple times, and then that can start to build up your habits. And then you can start to go through these things on autopilot, and it requires a lot less mental effort to get stuff done in a consistent and repeatable way. So I'm trying to engineer my own lifestyle to be more programmable and automatable, which is kind of ridiculous, but it, I'm doing it anyway because, you know, that's just how I be. So, Tejas, it is your turn. Final For word. Sure, yeah. My picks, you know, on the tech side, we already talked about Hasura, so I won't pick it again, but... Next.js. Oh my goodness. I put together a lot of websites for a lot of friends and I just, I use Next.js and it blows my mind every time. The way it works with TypeScript out of the box, the way I install it and it's ready to go and it's opinionated. So I don't need to think about my folder structure and oh, I love Next.js. So that is a pick for me, a hard pick this, 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 this uh, week, this time, whatever. On the music side, I've been listening to a lot of Switchfoot. Absolutely love this band, especially they have an album called The Beautiful Letdown, and I think moves me every single time. And then lastly, so I've been getting a lot, like I mean a lot of messages and things with, with you know, really amazing people asking me to mentor them. 
And just, I've seen a lot about this topic in general, mentorship. And so I have to shout out this book. It's called Power Mentoring by Susan E. Murphy. And it's, it's an amazing book that really presents a different idea about mentoring than I feel like, than I think most of us have. The, the book talks about how, you know, traditionally a mentee will usually like wait for guidance from the mentor and the mentor has to be super involved and like, in a sense, really like spoon feed the mentee. That's kind of the idea we have, at least. I want a mentor to show me the ropes. I want a mentor to help me. I want to, but this book kind of flips it on its head and presents the idea, actually, you could be a mentee that is extremely proactive and have a network of mentors. Yes. Love it. Awesome. We will see you next time, next week on React Roundup. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.